as we are making our final steps here, I want to start out with a prayer request and ask you to be praying for Brian and Doreen. Doreen's here. Brian's at home with Levi. As you know, and many of you prayed for, they were spent some extensive time getting a lot of tests up in Jacksonville to evaluate Brian with regard to his need of a liver transplant. And unfortunately, the doctors have determined because of all of the health issues that they're never going to approve him for a liver transplant. So as of now, that is off the table. They are just going to treat his symptoms as they come up, how they have been dealing with things. So as you might imagine, that's a disappointment because we've been praying for months and months and months, actually years for this. So pray for Brian, pray for Doreen. They... They're just adjusting to it, and this is the new reality of take, having that hope taken away. Also, Doreen shared, Brian has to have a test on, he's going to meet with a hematologist on Wednesday. They saw some proteins in his urine that they were very concerned with. They don't know what it is. Doreen thinks they might have a good idea, and they just want the hematologist to say, but that could potentially be another complication. So just pray for Brian and Doreen as they're dealing with all of this. I'm sure they would appreciate anything that you do in the way of encouragement, but it, it's, it all happened in the last couple of days that they got this news. So I'm going to start us off praying for that. And as you think about how to pray, I know I'm praying. Their daughter-in-law is due to have a son in May. It'd be wonderful for Brian to know his grandson and everything like that. So just something specific you can be praying for along with everything else that goes with it. So I'm going to open this with a word of prayer and then we're going to jump right into Second Peter. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the body of Christ and we thank you that Brian and Doreen are part of our family. Lord, they Receive news that is not a surprise to you. Lord, you're the sovereign God of the universe. You knew this was your plan for them. But for all of us who had hope of a liver transplant, particularly Brian and Doreen, it was unsettling. And so pray that you help them be encouraged as they adjust to this new reality. I pray for Brian's health. Pray for him as he's home with Levi this morning that you will help their time be good. I thank you that Doreen was able to be at church to be encouraged by the family of God today, and I pray, Lord, that you would preserve their family. I pray that their grandson would be born, and they would get to celebrate as an entire family with that. But, Lord, you're every one of us, not just Brian, every one of us, our days are numbered by you, Lord. So we just pray that they would be able to live out those days, however many they are, in a way that brings you glory and honor, and we pray that even for ourselves. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I want to finish this section. We're really down to the last two points, but we're in Second Peter 2, 10b through 16. So Peter, in Second in Peter chapter 2, he's really burying in on the false teachers. And I'm just going to quickly summarize what we've been going through. But he begins this chapter giving some of the characteristics of false teachers in verses 1 to 3. And then he used some illustrations of the Old Testament to talk about the fact that, look, even if it seems like they're winning, they're prospering, don't worry. God knows how to judge the guilty. And he used the Old Testament examples of 
angels and Noah and the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah. He knows how to take care of the guilty. Don't worry, the false teachers aren't getting away with it. And he knows how to rescue his children, the righteous, so evil doesn't win. And then when he gets into the middle of verse 10, in our versions, the original didn't have verse numbers, we get in the middle of verse 10 to the end of the chapter, verse 22, he's really just fleshing out and giving more graphic detail the warning about false teachers. So as we're going through this section, 10b through 16, for, for a simplistic outline, I just have five traits of false teachers. And I'm going to read the section again, then briefly get us up to speed, and then we'll finish our last two points because we've covered the first three. So follow along as I read 10b to 16. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater and might in number do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he received a rebuke for his own transgression for a mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man restraining the madness of the prophets. So as we began going through this, the first trait was arrogant self-promotion. And it really had to do with them reviling fallen angels, demons, and pretending as though they had more power than them. They were talking badly about fallen angels so that they would elevate their standing so that people would look at them as super spiritual. And Peter was pointing out the foolishness of that kind of arrogance because even the holy angels, those who haven't sinned, who have a lot more power than any human false teacher, don't even tread on that ground. They're content to let the Lord rebuke demonic activity. But, again, these false teachers are just promoting themselves. The second trait was ignorant declarations. They're boastful and they're proud, but they don't know what they're talking about. They're reviling angels when in the reality they don't really have any knowledge of true spiritual activity. So they're coming across as experts on demons and all that's entailed and yet the reality is they're just like animals. You could bait a trap for an animal and an animal can't think. It's just got instincts. It's going to follow the scent. Boom, the animal's trapped, killed, dead. That's how these false teachers are. They're just driven by their instincts. They're base creatures. The third trait and I covered it a little bit one week and then I finished it last week, is flamboyant immorality. And this is basically their immorality within the church. They're so shameless that whereas even unbelievers of that day and even of our day knew to do evil in the dark, the Romans were a pagan, immoral people. But even they didn't do things in the daytime, but these false teachers are doing it in the daytime. And as we developed last week, what picture is being portrayed is they're going to the agape feast, these fellowship dinners of the church, and they're looking for sexual conquests. Their eyes are full of an adulteress. In other words, every woman they look at is something to satisfy their sexually immoral appetites. They are seeking pleasure. 
And they're trying to find people who are unstable, meaning they aren't grounded in the faith. Perhaps they're not protected. Perhaps they're alone. But they're just looking for a victim. Someone to be their sexual target. And again, they're doing it out in the open. They're doing it, of all places, at the equivalent in our day of a church dinner. Nothing could be so immoral, but that's the nature of these teachers. So their arrogant self-promotion, ignorant declarations, flamboyant immorality, and now we're getting into new material. And the fourth trait of these false teachers is trained greediness. Trained greediness. Now this will sort of jump out, but there's a little bit more here. He says in 14, the second half of the verse, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Again, it's not going to be hard to find my point. I just used the words of the text. But this goes beyond perhaps what even I was originally thinking. It didn't necessarily capture the fullness in my mind until I started studying it. But the reality is Peter's already said that these false teachers are greedy. If you look back up in chapter 2 to verse 3, those first three verses were characteristics of false teachers. He says this at the beginning of verse 3, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. In other words, they will lie, they'll manipulate so that they can line their own pockets. And greed certainly is about money but it goes beyond the fact that they're charlatans who want to make money. They are covetous to the core of their being. Anytime where it's a reflection of the word heart, it really is, of course, not talking about the organ. It's talking about who they are, what makes them tick. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Here, he says, their hearts are trained in greed. They have an insatiable desire for more and more of what they perceive satisfies their flesh. Now, they're clearly motivated by wealth. We mostly associate greed with wealth. I think Jesus described them clearly in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And that's the perverse nature of these false teachers. They're pretending to serve God. They're pretending that God is who they're serving. And yet the reality is it's all about me. I'm lining my pockets. But this covetousness really, I think, goes beyond. And it has to do with every appetite of the flesh. I don't know that I can fully articulate how lawless these people are and the picture Peter is trying to paint. Everything they do is about living out their fleshly lust. It's all about me. What can I get out of it? And that encompasses everything. Money is just the means to the end to get everything they want to satisfy their selfishness. As I was preparing, I, I thought of the parable that Jesus said about a rich man. It's in Luke chapter 12. I don't have that memorized. I look it up. Where is that? And I do a search in Luke chapter 12, verses 16 to 21. 
And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. That's what these false teachers are doing in a sense. They never have enough. How big was the offering this week? Let's call it past the plate again. I actually heard false teachers say that. It's, it's bizarre. Because the people in the pews don't get up and walk out. They go, okay, go back in my pocket again. Now Jesus' parable went on. God called that rich man a fool. But amongst these false teachers... They know no bounds. They never have enough. And everything about them is more and more and more. In fact, I think when you read all of Scripture, that's one of the reasons why they never responded to the gospel. Clearly, they would have heard the gospel there in churches. And yet they don't believe. Luke 8, 14 describes them. The seed which fell among the thorns, those are the ones who have heard... And as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. In fact, they've rejected completely every bit of sound teaching. That's really going to be a lot of our last point. Jesus, in Luke twelve fifteen, then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. They're rejecting all of that. And they're saying, give me more, give me more. Now, there's an aspect of the fact that in the New Testament era when this was written, not everybody had a completed Bible. They couldn't download 15 versions of the Bible. But the fact that false teachers today are still doing the exact same thing in the works is astounding. Because you have all the warnings of Scripture about greed, and yet you have false teachers saying, I need a faster private jet. And I can't fly on a regular airplane that's filled with demons. That was Kenneth Copeland. It's astonishing. But here's what happens none of this is accidental. They're not greedy because they were raised poor and they didn't have shoes. They're not greedy because we live in a capitalistic society with unequal wealth distribution. They're greedy because they worked at it. Having a heart trained in greed, the word trained there, we get the word gymnasium from it. It's athletic training. You think about somebody who's a professional athlete or an Olympic athlete. They don't just pop out that way. They work hard. They develop the muscles and the skills. Peter is saying these individuals work that hard to become that greedy. It's part and parcel of who they are. They worked at it. Years of covetousness. Years of indulging every desire. Years of wanting what others have for themselves. Years of flagrantly and arrogantly and defiantly disregarding one of the Ten Commandments. Exodus twenty seventeen: You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's 
wife. Whereas male servitors, female servitors, ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor, these false teachers are covering it at all. I'll take his wife, I'll take his wife, I'll take his money, I'll take her money. Now, I remember hearing a statement long ago, and it was in a different context. It was talking about people falling into sin. We say that, oh, that person fell into adultery. That person fell into sin. And I think it was John MacArthur. If it wasn't him, it wasn't me, but it was somebody that said, when somebody falls like that, they don't fall very far. In other words, they were already doing the things that cultivate that, that live that. That's these false teachers. This is their life. This is who they are. This is who they want to be. It's intentional and it's reckless. Again, the more you read about these things, the more astonishing it is how much prosperity theology is not just promoted, but is successful in America. I wrote down a list of names, and some of them are old names. Some of them, eh, they're all old names. A few new names, but they're all connected. There was a faith healer named Peter Popoff who stills on TV. He was caught being a charlatan with earpieces, pretending to have a word from God, but really he had an assistant with a card that was whispering things. That's Ethel from Minneapolis. Her knee hurts. He was caught, and yet he's still on TV today asking people for money, and people are still sending it. Robert Tilton, another scandalous guy. He had exposés about him. Boy, he was a piece of work. And made millions. Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. Every unbeliever could make fun of Christianity because of them. Tammy Faye and her tears. They defrauded countless people of a lot of money. Kenneth Copeland, to me, is the, he's the most successful. Now, he's a disciple of a guy named Ken Hagen who has a son named Ken Hagen. But Kenneth Copeland is the one that he flies his own plane. You know, they got a picture of his house. He's got a runway right up to his house. And one of his disciples, because they all come from the same area, is a guy named Creflo Dollar. He came to his people. He's got a lot of money already, but he told his people he knew God wanted him to have a different jet. He needed a different jet, a better jet. Because I'm sure he looked over in Kenneth Copeland's fence and said, I want what he's got. And it's on and on and on it goes. And some of them are on TV making money, but there's countless others that are just picking the pockets in small corners that we don't ever hear about. As I've gone around the world, by God's grace, I've had an opportunity to go a few places. I'm not a world traveler. But I remember the first mission trip I ever went on was to Ukraine. And what I found there is after the fall of the Soviet Union, not only did all the cults come in, but the biggest church in Kiev at that time, this was back in 2003, was Prosperity Gospel Church. The disciple of Benny Hinn that was making money off the Ukrainians that don't have any money. When I'm in Africa, particularly the first time I went to Nigeria, we're dealing with unreached people, but there's a church every three feet. Some of the wealthiest pastors in the world are in Nigeria because they're disciples of Benny Hinn and they've learned how to tell people, give me your money for a blessing from God. There's abject wealth and then there's pastors driving around in Rolls Royce and they have private planes. I told a story last week of a pastor that was abusing people sexually. One of them was in Nigeria and there's still a compound. He died, but there's still a compound where his disciples still make money. 
when Debbie and I were in Fresno, we went to a small group at our church, and the leader of the small group was a guy named Darvin. He was a nice guy. And Darvin had a unique skill. He knew an old computer program. Now, I'm not a computer guy, so I couldn't tell you what. But there was a ministry that was on the radio in the 70s that was still on the air. And they had this really, really old computer software, and very few people could do it. And so for a period of time, they hired Darvin to work for them. And he would recount that this ministry that had seen its heyday 30 years before still got checks every day with money in it, cash. In fact, he was t- I remember him talking about they sent out, they wanted to promote spiritual warfare and giving, so they sent out the sword of the Spirit. What do you think it was? It was a cocktail sword that you put through an olive in a drink. And they bought boxes of them and they would send it out to you for a donation. And people were sending in cash. And every day when the mail would come in, the family of this particular ministry leader would come through and they'd take cash, how much they wanted. 100 here, 20 here. And after they'd taken the cash, then the ministry would count it and record it. The point is, these individuals don't just stumble into it. They train their hearts for it. And that's a big danger even today, everywhere. It's not a trivial thing. I was thinking about this. Peter sums up those whose hearts are trained in greed. He calls them accursed children. Thinking that's not what you want on your tombstone. Accursed child. But they're living under the curse of God because they're so flagrant and their vile wickedness death is all they have to look forward to as he said already they're going to get the wages of wrongdoing Galatians 3.10 describes them for as many as are the works of the law are under a curse for it is written cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them now we escape that curse because of the blood of Jesus Christ because of the righteous life that he lived the death he died these false teachers don't have any of that covering they'll live out Galatians 6 God's not mocked a man reaps what he sows when Jesus would identify their paternity we're children of God these accursed children have a different father. John eight forty four, the beginning of the verse, you are of your father the devil and you want to do the desires of your father. That really sums up these false teachers. They are trained in greediness because it's all about them. And that was the issue with Satan. What did Satan want Jesus to do? Worship me. These men are living that out. These false teachers are living it out. And that brings us to the final point and the fifth and final trait that Peter has for us of these false teachers. And it involves a fascinating account of biblical history that I can't do justice, but I'll tell you where the verses are so you can go back and read it yourself. Perhaps you're already familiar with it. But Peter knew the people he was talking to knew what he was talking about. But the fifth trait of false teachers is this, deliberate disobedience. Deliberate disobedience. Verse 15 and 16. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. Having followed the way of Balaam the son of Baor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression for a mute donkey 
speaking with the voice of a man, restrain the madness of the prophet. So there's a lot here, but the point itself comes from the very beginning of this verses. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. That's the deliberate disobedience. Now we're going to describe it more. But the reality is, this is not accidental. This is willful, volitional, intentional conduct. This is a complete rejection by a lifestyle of everything that God says is required for his children. Again, remember, everyone he's talking about is standing up in a pulpit on a Sunday, or the equivalent of 2,000 years ago. These are leaders of churches. Remember, Peter said, just as there were false prophets in the old times, there'll be false teachers among you. He's talking about what's going on in church. So these men are standing up, saying, thus saith the Lord, and the reality is, they've intentionally rejected all of that by their very lives. It's a complete rejection of everything God has said the scriptures show over and over and over again that God's expectation is his children will walk in his ways. They'll follow his word. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, gave a wise recommendation. He saw that Moses was overworked. Moses could have listened to Pastor Steve's message. Take a break, Moses. But Exodus 18, 19, and 20 has this account where his father-in-law is telling him, well, you got to delegate. you, you got to change things up. You can't sustain this pace. He said this, now listen to me. I'll give you counsel and God be with you. You be the people's representatives before God and you bring the disputes to God. Then teach them the statutes and the laws and make known to them the way in which they are to walk and the work they are to do. That really describes it. The prophet Samuel, 1 Samuel 12, 23, in describing things to the Israelites, they were a little bit off track. He says, I'll instruct you in the good and right way. Psalm 86, 11, Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Reunite my heart to fear your name. In fact, it's interesting because Jesus identified himself as the personification of this. John 14, 5 and 6. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So the dichotomy could not be stronger. These men are claiming to follow the Lord and yet they're absolutely rejecting Jesus and every aspect of God's moral standards. They may say one thing out of one side of their mouth, but their lives show something completely different. They have gone astray. If holiness is right here, this is the way, they're somewhere over in the next zip code. They're described by Proverbs, and it's in the context of how you avoid certain things, but Proverbs 2, 13 to 15 from those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who delight in doing evil and rejoice in the perversity of evil, whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways, Peter would say, amen, that's exactly what I'm talking about. 
They've forsaken the right way. They know something of where it is. It's in God's Word. They don't want any part of it. They have gone astray. But here's the key. They didn't just get lost. It's hard to do nowadays with GPS, but all of us at some point in the past of our life have driven somewhere and it's like, oh, how did I wind up here? <laughs> Wait, well, I thought um, early in our marriage, we lived in California, and I would always argue with Debbie that she didn't know what she was talking about. I knew where I was going. And after being wrong for about a year, every time I finally gave up and just said, tell me where to turn. I can't do it. But the point is, we've accidentally shown up where we don't want to be. That's not what's happening here. These men aren't trying to follow God like us sometimes, and we're following, and suddenly it's like squirrel, and it's, oh, duh. No, they're intentionally rejecting it. They have forsaken it. They don't want any part of it. And it's interesting because he illustrates all this by an Old Testament account, and this is the part where you could preach a whole sermon on this. But Peter says... Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor. They followed the way of Balaam. Now, many of us, if you've been around the Bible, at least you've heard this name before. Probably you heard the account of a talking donkey, which is all that's here. But Balaam really was one of those fascinating characters that we can't really fully grasp what was going on. The entire account that Peter is borrowing from is found in the scriptures in the book of Numbers from chapter 22 to 24. Now Balaam's mentioned several other times. If you have a Bible software and you search his name, you'll see him pop up in other places. But the account that Peter's talking about is in Numbers chapter 22 to verse 24 and it really lays out pretty much everything. And again, Peter doesn't divulge all of this. He assumes that his hearers know, but I don't want to assume that we all know all of the details. So I'm going to try and quickly summarize it, but again, you want to be a Berean, see if these things are so, go to Numbers 22 through 24, those three chapters. There was a king of Moab named Balak. Moab was an enemy of Israel. And Israel, as a people, were going along and they had just wiped out some people called the Amorites. So Balak is looking around and they're thinking, uh-oh, there's a lot of those Israelites. We could be in trouble. They could overwhelm us. I don't know that we can stand up to them. And the scriptures say that Balak was the king of the Moabites. And so the leadership talked and they were concerned. Because it seems like they must have had some awareness that perhaps the God of the Israelites was a formidable opponent. But they were trying to figure out some way other than a military confrontation to defeat these people that had just wiped out the Amorites. So in their plotting and planning, they knew of a man named Balaam. Now we don't know all there is to know about Balaam. Perhaps God will tell us more in heaven, but I don't think we'll care in heaven. We'll see Jesus, and that's all we'll want to deal with. But this man, Balaam, seemed to have powerful abilities. He seemed to have been imbued as something of a prophet, 
But interestingly, he seems to have been viewed as perhaps a prophet for hire. There's a little reference where Balak is talking and is appealing to him, come help us out, we got an enemy. We, and we know if you bless people, they're blessed. But if you curse people, they're cursed. And if you know the biblical account, that's what he was going for. Have Balaam come and curse Israel and everything would be okay. What happened to the Amorites wouldn't happen to the Moabites. They'd be good. So this is where his character is a little bit uneasy. Because at first he was saying, look, I just only say what I'm told. He claimed to be a prophet of the Most High God. And in some strange sense, he did have communication with God. These are those mysteries that we don't fully understand. But a true prophet of God would say, wait a minute, these are God's people. I'll never do this. You're barking up the wrong tree. I serve the living God. You need to repent. That's not what Balaam did. He hemmed and hawed, but Balaam eventually was going to go and see them in person. And we know from the rest of all of Scripture that the reality is, I'm sure Balaam was trying to figure out, how can I justify taking their money? Because i got a payday coming. Peter says he loves the wages of unrighteousness. The reality is, he wanted money. And so Balaam was going to go and talk to Balak. And despite his protestations, he was going to, in all likelihood, come up with a transactional bargain. But God intervened. Peter calls it restraining the madness of the prophet, the foolishness of him. But God intervened in an unusual way. He intervened with a donkey. According to verse 16 of 2 Peter 2, but he received a rebuke for his own transgression for a mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. A literal donkey spoke words. I've never seen that. My dog sometimes starts whining and you'd think it's somebody talking, but it's not really talking. This is a situation where God did something that is a miracle. Numbers chapter 22 records that. I'm going to read verses 27 to 30. But basically, Balaam was on a donkey going this way, and God had a fiery angel with a sword ready to kill him. And the donkey looked up and saw it. Verse 27, when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam was angry and struck the donkey with a stick. At that point, that's probably a normal human transaction. The donkey sat down, get up. But then, verse 28, And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. And she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Then Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have... Think about that. He just answered the donkey's question. <laughs> I don't know that I could get past the fact that the donkey just was talking to me. But Balaam's like, oh, okay, yeah, that's a fair question. Let me tell you why. Because you've made a mockery of me. If there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. The donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you've ridden all your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed to do so to you? And he said, no. Mysteries, but it really happened. That's what Peter's talking about. Then God 
open the eyes of Balaam. Verse 31. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand and he bowed all the way to the ground. At that moment, what Balaam realized is that donkey saved his life. Because had he kept going, that angel would have destroyed him. Now God gave some new direction to Balaam at that point. But Balaam didn't truly repent and believe. He seems to have complied to a certain extent with what God told him to do. And that's when he went up and started blessing Israel. And Balak would go crazy. Well, let's find another hill. Let's do it again. Happened again. We'll stop it. You keep doing what I told you not to do. But that wouldn't have happened if that donkey hadn't intervened. If God hadn't given it a voice. And if God hadn't opened his eyes and spared his life temporarily. Now here's what we know. Even though Balaam didn't stand on the mountaintop and curse the sons of Israel like Balak wanted to hire him to do, he still taught Balak how to corrupt the Israelites. This shows the wickedness and the unrepentant heart. There's an account, and I've got time. I'll read it from Numbers 25, verses 1 to 9. Numbers 25, 1 to 9. I told you the account of Balaam is from 22 to 24, but the effects of Balaam's teaching, as we'll see in a moment, are in chapter 25. And remember, Balak was a Moabite. So it was the Moabites that were involved. Chapter 25, verse 1 of Numbers. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. In other words, the Israelites wanted to start having sex with the Moabites. And part of that was ritualistic idol worship. And it's like, hey, the more the merrier. We'll go to the party. And so God's people started engaging in immorality with the Moabites and with the Moabite women. Verse 4, The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce angler of the Lord may turn away from Israel. There's a sermon in there about how God views sin. So Moses, verse 5, said to the judges of Israel, Each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Instantly, death penalty for engaging in this fornication and idolatry. Then behold, verse 6, One of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman. In the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they're weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. In other words, brazen immorality. Not even hiding it. Verse 7, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation, took a spear in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through the body. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. Those who died by the plague were 24,000. In other words, this act of harlotry and idolatry that the Israelites engaged in with the Moabites... Immediately after Balaam had come onto and off of the scene resulted in 24,000 people being killed by God. And we know from elsewhere 
that it didn't just coincidentally happen. Numbers chapter 31 verse 16. Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor so the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. In other words, Balaam didn't physically curse Israel because he was afraid of that angel of the Lord killing him. But he was so du duplicitous in his heart that he didn't have any problem saying, I got a plan B for you. This will accomplish the same purpose. In fact, the book of Revelation in the rebuke of one of the churches says this, Revelation 2.14, But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak, remember that was the king of the Moabites, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So the picture is completed. Balaam was a wicked, false teacher who taught the enemies of God how to corrupt through the desires of the flesh. Go to the feast. Engage in the revelry. Engage in the sexual immorality. Peter's saying, this is what the false teachers are following. <laughs> They're not teaching the truth. In fact, they've forsaken the way. Their life is following after Balaam. That's exactly what they want. They're following that way. The wages of unrighteousness, they like it. Immorality, they like it. Covetousness and greediness, they like it. And leading other people astray with them, that's the whole reason for existence. Now, Balaam met a certain fate. Numbers 31, verses 7 and 8. The Israelite army is talking about. They killed the kings of Midian along with the rest of their slain, Evi and Rechem and Zur and Hur and Reba, the five kings of Midian. They also killed Balaam, the son of Baor, with the sword. They're going to get what they're working for. The wages of sin is death. Peter could not use more strong language to condemn these teachers. And nowadays, if somebody throws out the name Hitler or something like that, that really offends people because that, you can't really pick a worse name. Balaam is one of the worst false prophets. And yet, these false teachers are following in his footsteps, as are all other false teachers who are modeling this type of behavior. So what's the point for us? This doesn't describe our elders, praise the Lord. Doesn't describe our leadership. But we have to be on the alert to make sure that we're not taken in. Again, as you, you think about the things of the book of Revelation and the worldwide nature of things, you can see in today's world how that's so easy. Through the internet through texting, through everything. It's information circles the world even faster than when I was a kid with TV. Because TV wasn't even 24 hours when I was a kid. False teachers have a foothold around the world. The poorest countries I've been in, people pull out smartphones. People that are living in huts with no indoor plumbing and no electricity pull out a phone. 
And Satan is sending false teachers to deceive all around the world. We've got to be careful where we spend our money. We've got to be careful what ministries we support. We've got to be careful who we endorse. Particularly, we've got to be careful who we're seen to endorse by our association with them. Certainly, we take the gospel to everybody. Don't mishear me. But don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And I didn't come up with that. So Peter's warning to the church is the warning to us. Be aware and be careful. False teachers are out there. Don't let them get you. So we finish this section. Let me close this with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll protect us. Lord, Satan is a master deceiver. These false teachers are under his authority. And Lord, we can pridefully think it couldn't happen to us and then we could be duped. Lord, you warned that there's going to come a time when Satan and his emissaries will be doing signs and wonders that are so spectacular they would deceive the elect if that were possible. Lord, help us be on our guard. Protect us. And as we go out, Lord, help us remember the things we've heard today. Lord, I pray that some would come back for the prayer and praise tonight. And I pray, Lord, that you would use your word to transform our hearts so that we would not abandon the way, but we would walk in truth. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.